the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. I want to ask you about some reporting that my colleague here in Poland noticed. He recently spoke with the mayor of the largest border town who told him that the refugee system is essentially not set up for this, that it will collapse. It's an improvised system that can work for maybe two weeks, but not indefinitely. And I'm wondering what the United States is going to do more specifically to set up a permanent infrastructure. And relatedly, is the United States willing to make a specific allocation for Ukrainian refugees? And for President Duda, I wanted to know if you think, and if you asked the United States to specifically accept more refugees. Okay. <laughs> a friend in need is a friend indeed. <laughs> okay, I, yeah, I can first. Okay, so this time. Stunning, truly stunning. Two million refugees from the war in Ukraine arriving in Poland alone. And she is there in Poland and she thinks it is something to laugh at. I'm trying to remember the last time an issue of such magnitude was a cause for hilarity for a Western politician. And I. I simply can't recall. Maybe our special guest for America First one-on-one can recall. He's the senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, author of a library of superlative books, every single one of them worth your time. The most recent one is the bestseller, The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites tribalism and globalization are destroying the idea of america it has a five-star rating with only 2200 reviews on amazon professor victor davis hansen welcome back to one-on-one thank you thank you um it's a serious question can you recall in in modern history um pick some geopolitical uh, catastrophe whether the hutu and the tutsi the balkan cleansing um the outbreak of ebola in africa i'm trying to call it was there a western leader who who had a public press conference joint with another nation laughed when asked a question about that crisis I, I i'm not trying to make a political point i'm trying to you know historically recall if there was such an instance well, there's been a lot of casual mistakes. I mean, there were people in the British Parliament that said, you know, why would we want to go all the way uh, and defend the Falklands? And that that green-lighted General Galtieri. Yes. Or we had our ambassador, April Glasby, said, you know, we don't get involved in Saddam's interstate Middle East rivalries. That at, And we had Dean Atchison said, I don't think realistically Korea is in our orbit nuclear shield. But more... Uh, privately, maybe Jennifer Grishel, remember the other day when asked about pumping more, she burst out in the same laughter. Yes. Are you crazy? What could I do? And then, of course, now she's uh, tin cup in hand begging the reviled uh, oil companies that she was made has made a career of, of ridiculing to beg, beg them to pump more to save them before the midterm. 
Yeah, that that peculiar moment where she's asked uh, about the the price of oil before the invasion. She she laughs. This is the Secretary of Energy for the Biden administration laughing and saying, well, "Do you think I have any control over oil prices?" Well, if you don't, why do we have a Secretary of Energy? Um, you, you mentioned that. Um, let's let's talk about the peculiar rewriting of history. That the the price. We, I did the math on the way to the studio. There has been a $1.94 increase of gas prices since January the 20th, since the inauguration, and only 70 cents of that has occurred since the invasion of Ukraine. Yet we are supposed to believe that the, the White House narrative is that the price in oil, inflation and everything else is a function of Vladimir Putin. In, in California, does that resonate? Do people believe that everything can be blamed on the last three weeks, Professor? No, nobody, nobody believes that. California, you know, is much worse. Uh, I'm in a very poor area of California. It's got the lowest per capita income of anywhere in the state. This town that I live near is about $16,000 per annual uh, income per individual. But the price right now, Seb, is about $5.10 for gasoline and six oh five for diesel fuel. And the diesel and gas used to be comparable, but for some reason in California they've got a wide gap now. We're six dollars. So if you're in a if you're a trucker going down the ninety nine all day long and into Arizona, thousand mile trip, you're gonna lose two to three hundred dollars of your income just to pay for additional diesel fuel that's more than doubled in price. And uh, that's where we are and everybody understands that uh, but remember that native understand this is only the latest narrative that Putin did it before it was the greedy oil companies yes. did it. And then before that, it was all the people who didn't want to use these beautiful productive leases that they just ignored as if a, a, an, an oil executive has ever uh, ignored a lease that has sizable deposits upon it. So we, we've heard all of these excuses. And this, I think a lot of people feel that they're crying crocodile tears about uh, the high price, but they feel that, well, we might take a, a short-term hit in the mentor, but this is uh, Stephen Chu's dream come true, another Californian, that we can get, you know, 7 or $8 a gallon gas, and we can make uh, what is otherwise uneconomical alternate energy a reality. So I don't think they're too upset about it. It falls on somebody else, not themselves. They don't really drive that much along the coastal corridor or the, the wealthy people that enact these policies are always shed from the consequences of their ideology. And, and the geopolitical consequences of seeing the yeah. most powerful man in the world not having his phone calls returned from the emir of the UAE or the king of Saudi Arabia or having uh, State Department officials go cap in hand to Russian ally Venezuela to try and get cheaper gas or oil from them. This has broader re repercussions geopolitically, doesn't it? Uh, well, absolutely. I think they're very upset. The left is that we are asking the House of Saud or Putin, as we did right before the war. But I don't think they're upset that we are now asking Venezuela and Iran because they have been advocates for uh, reopening negotiations. We have a Russian interlocutor, you know, that's dealing for, uh, on our behalf, supposedly, with Iran. And so I don't think that bothers them, that the Iranians and Venezuelans will have pressure. Uh, all the, I mean, if, we, if you distill it all down, Seb, it's basically this administration said, 
We're not going to ask our fellow Americans in Alaska and North Dakota and Texas who willingly want to take on the burden of fracking and horizontal drilling to help other Americans. We would rather rely on people that hate our guts. And that's what they're doing. And it's so bizarre that, you know, that Wall Street Journal poll came out and shows you that for all the left glee uh, that he got a big bump at Ukraine, he didn't. And the, the margin is still 15 or 16 points between approval and disapproval. And that's because I think not just the high oil price, but the sense that he doesn't care. He, he, he just takes off on weekends to, to his home in Delaware. He doesn't really address things. He makes fun of people. He, he denies reality and people think, you know, it really begs the question, Seb, is it more pernicious and deleterious for the United States to have somebody who's cognitively challenged, who's failing in, at a geometric, not just an arithmetic rate every month, or to have someone who appears to be cognizant like Kamala Harris, but is so ignorant of foreign policy that she's actually dangerous when she t uh, picks up the slack of a non mentis president. But, but it, we, can't, we, can't, we can't just narrow it down to them, sadly, because we have members of the cabinet, like the transport secretary. We have one of the chief economic advisors on cable television say, you, you should buy an electric car. And our goal is to have zero fossil fuels. So it seems as if the whole administration has been taken hostage by this environmentalist extremism. Yeah, as long as we remember that the hostage takers, as you point out, are very numerous. So it's not just Pete Buttigieg, uh, but it's the Bernie Sanders wing of the Democratic Party. If that is even if that's even an accurate term, I think it's all the Democratic Party now. Yeah. Elizabeth Warren, the Obamas. All of these people, I think, if you were to ask them, feel that they had a great moment uh, with Obama in power, with a supermajority in the Congress, and they blew it. They weren't bold enough. And now Joe Biden, who was always the understudy and sort of ridiculed as screws everything up he touches, I think he feels that to the degree he can, he's cognizant, he feels this is our moment. We're going to out Obama, Obama, and they're going to go full blast into the midterm. I don't even think that if you ask them, well, you're going to alienate all the American people and you're going to lose the midterms and you're going to wipe out your fellow Democrats. They're going to say, so what? We have three more years and we can get a lot more damage done in that time. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm afraid you might be right. Professor, I'm going to do something a little bit different. We'll get back to the situation in Europe. The latest uh, press conference given by uh, Zelensky in English, which was very interesting. But I, I, I'd like to recruit you. To, oh, I, I need your assistance. So... Last week, I think it was on Thursday or Wednesday, I posted photographs of the shelled-out hospital in Mariupol. Um, I made some statements about the KGB background of Vladimir Putin, and I was mercilessly, mercilessly attacked on one social media platform as a neocon and as a member of the deep state, despite having been subpoenaed by the January 6th committee, which is quite a strange thing, situation to be in. And I was told by those who were, quote-unquote, trolling me on Instagram that, don't I understand? Why am I promoting this propaganda? Vladimir Putin is an anti-globalist, pro-Christian, and he's saving the West. Where does this come from? Should we have a response to this? Because uh, allegedly these are putative conservatives, but I find it mind-chilling that somebody can believe a former KGB colonel who persecuted Christians is somehow now saving the West and, and Christendom. 
Well, he's surely not uh, a Sermon on the Mount person, Putin. But, you know, if you look at polls, 75 percent of Republicans want a strong muscular response and slightly more than Democrats, 73. So it's not the majority of people. And I think that what they don't understand is that Putin is like a, a tiger in the zoo. He's a predator and he's an opportunist. And if somebody puts his hand in there, he's going to get it taken off. Or if the zoo cage is poorly designed, bad things will happen. But that doesn't mean that we don't blame the tiger. We just assume that he's opportunistic and he'll always try to devour anybody he can. So I think they miss that. And so what I'm getting at, yes, we appeased him. Yes, we had uh, very dangerous energy policies. Yes, reset was a disaster. Yes, Georgia, Ukraine, and Crimea deserved a stronger response. But the idea that we are to blame or that we have an ally in him is crazy. Uh, he is a carnivore, a raptor. He will always take advantage of us when oil prices are high, when NATO's in disarray, and when an American president is weak and provocatively weak. And so that, that's just a reality. We can't change that. It's just the way it is. You know, there were a lot of people said the same thing, Seb, about Mussolini. They thought, you know what? He weathered the Great Depression so much better than we did. He built uh, new train terminals. He is creating a new Roman civilization of enlightenment around the shores of the Mediterranean. And they didn't really care that he was a thug and a murderer. And uh, history really showed them to be wrong. I mean, there were people like Ezra Pound that praised Mussolini, got mad at anybody who criticized him. So I wish the conservative movement would, if, if it's perfectly legitimate to say the left appeased him and created an adventurous Putin, they did. And they unfairly characterized Donald Trump as a collider, a colluder with Putin, which was terrible. We aggravated Putin, that's true, but that does not disguise the central truth of this catastrophe, that Vladimir Putin saw an opening and he tried to swallow all of Ukraine. And right now his fallback position is a Grozny-like, let's destroy as many cities as we can and then negotiate our way out of, say, getting a third or a half or two thirds of Ukraine, settle down for a year or two, and then swallow the rest of it. That's his strategy. It's sort of, uh, I made a desert and I'll call it peace. Yeah. Well, and what, are the, what is the correct response to the conspiracy theories that the Soviet era remnant bioweapons or biological defense research facilities that in part were funded thanks to the Non-Luga Act, which was sponsored by Senator Obama in 2005, mm -hmm. that we have people who allegedly, allegedly again, I say are conservatives saying, well, um, Putin is justified because we were going to attack him. The deep state, America, what have you, was going to attack him from these bioweapons labs in Ukraine, and he's just going there to save his country. Is there, is there any reasonable response to that, or are we just talking to people with no, tinfoil hats? That, notice they don't say the same thing about China. Why don't they say... Well, Francis Collins and Fauci rerouted 600,000 through Echo Health to the Wuhan. And so why don't they start? They don't. They don't blame uh, us for the Wuhan virus. They can blame us for poor government policies. But I think it's because of what you mentioned. There's this 
feeling that Putin poses. He gives these speeches that are absolutely Machiavellian when he talks about he's so sorry the West is in decline and doesn't stand up for values anymore and it's forgotten its enlightened and religious history and he's a man of faith. And that appeals to a lot of people who feel that uh, there's no hope in the United States. It shouldn't, but it does. And I think it's incumbent upon all of us on the conservative side not to mix the facts that there's culpability for appeasing him, but that is not sympathy for the opportunistic opening that he took. And it's very hard. To, I have the same thing if it means anything. I get emails every day from somebody who said, I saw you, I heard an interview, I saw something you write, and you were criticizing uh, you know, the left, but you don't say anything about Putin had a right to do this or... Uh, if you criticize the left for appeasing him, that means that we should be behind Putin. I mean, it's crazy. And the and you know what the sad thing about it is, uh, Seb, right before the midterms, it's feeding a left-wing gleeful narrative yes. that the entire conservative movement is pro-Putin. And it's not. It polls higher anti-Putin than even uh, doctrinaire Democrats. So uh, that's what's scary about it. Yeah, my... my, uh, my issue with it is just a very simple observation all conservatives of every ilk isolationist buchananites or or, or not neocons 40 years ago <laughs> we understood who kgb colonels were we didn't like kgb colonels we knew what they did to christians and what they thought about the west and now it's as if that history has just been memory hold in some orwellian he's, sense and it never happened He's a very mellifluous python. You remember when George Bush, a good conservative, said, I looked into yes. his eyes. And then we had Hillary with that jacuzzi button said, this is the start <laughs> of a new, sort of like a Casablanca. This is the start of a new beautiful relationship. Yeah. And Obama, the hot mic, tell Vladimir that give me some space and I'll be flexible in missile defense. The only one who didn't, the irony is the only person who really hurt Putin, forget the rhetoric, Trump did art of the deal rhetoric on occasion, but who absolutely hurt Putin, whether it was oil or deterrence or upping NATO defense and U.S. defenses or selling javelins or killing mercenaries in Syria or getting out of asymmetrical, was Donald J. Trump. Yeah. To, to, to the extent, that, that's let's, bizarre. That, let, yeah. let's be clear, to the extent of killing 200 Russian mercenaries in Syria, which uh, Putin did nothing to respond to because he was yeah. afraid of him. Professor Hansen, um, let's ha having written seminal works on strategy um, uh, before the dying citizen, I would recommend the Second World Wars by Professor Hansen. How do you rate the performance strategically of uh, Vladimir of Vladimir Zelensky? Uh, the strategic communications, the use of information operations, and how significant was it that I think it was on Thursday or yes, Thursday evening our time, he gave this English language interview in which he said, "It is time to speak to Putin." Is that a bad Bad sign? No, but whether he speaks to Putin or not will depend on the pulse of the battlefield. So if he continues to survive and they continue to have these sort of unexpectedly heavy losses at some and public opinion and world opinion is against Putin, then he'll be in a, a stronger position. I think what he'll probably end up saying is, 
Well, we didn't have Crimea anyway. We were never going to get it back. We were never going to get these parts of eastern Ukraine. So if I can negotiate, and, and we were never going to get into NATO, no matter what the promises and the wink and nod, uh, if I can negotiate an independent Ukraine, then I'll take it. The problem with that, though, is I don't think he's done. I think he would take, uh, Putin will take that and stop maybe and even leave Kiev out of it. But then he will, you know, digest it. And three or four years from now, he will think, well, you know, they made a deal with me, so I'm going to go on and on and do that. So I don't think, I think maybe he could talk about, he doesn't want to be the person rejecting any discussion of diplomatic solutions when people are dying in hospital. So politically, he has to be open to it. But if he's a smart, if he's smart, he'll be like Churchill in the worst hours of the Blitz, not discussing things with Hitler. And I don't think he can ever cut a deal with Putin. And uh, I hope that he will be in a position of, of stronger, uh, a, a position so that he can outright reject that. But I think he's trying to say to his own people, it's just not my ego that's getting him, getting us killed. This guy wants to kill us. And I'm open to talk to him if he'll get out. But that's about a far, as far as he should go. I think the only mistake he's made, Seb, is that we are pouring... Uh, millions of dollars, billions of dollars, Europe is, and at certain times in his desperation, I, I understand why he's doing it, he tends to, to be shrill and says the United States should have a no-fly zone over the whole country. Well, you know, given the history of our interference and their affairs and their interference in our affairs, especially the Ukrainian ambassador during the Trump administration, yes. who wrote an op-ed, you know, criticized right before the election. I don't think that's wise to get in and into our discussions, especially when if you have a no-fly zone, then you're asking an American pilot to shoot down a Russian pilot, and they'll shoot down most of them, and we will be in a very tense situation. Last week, we, we spoke to an amazing individual, uh, Chuck Holton, former Ranger, who is now the Newsmax war correspondent in uh, Ukraine. He was filmed... Uh, carrying a double amputee out of a hospital after a, a bridge collapsed, an amazing individual. And he reported for us, and this has been, I've looked this up and confirmed it elsewhere, that the Ukrainian forces have captured intact more than 250 tanks. That's in, that's in less than three weeks of fighting. Are you surprised by that? No, I, I think they're going to be even more sophisticated. From the people that I've talked to, I think we kind of missed the real story. The real story was they only they had a small number of javelins and now they're flooded with javelins. Yes. And these are not the kind of, I was embedded two years, uh, two tours of a week or two each in Iraq. And I saw those and those are obsolete now. These new javelins have ranges of two and a half miles. Fire and forget. They lock on the target. They go straight down on the vulnerable. They take out a three million dollar tank. And so I think they've denied most of the main highways, maybe not outside of Kiev yet, and with these shoulder-fired shoulder, shoulder fired missiles, the lower airspace uh, is not being used by Russia as it was. I mean, I don't think they can bring in helicopters and bring in a lot of food and fuel without getting shot down in major uh, air, air bases. And so the, the key now is they have high-flying uh, planes that have smart bombs, and they have uh, missile platforms that are probably in Russian territory. And that's the that's what's doing the damage and some artillery strikes. But each day that goes on, Putin's got a. I, I think he loses. I know a lot of people think the opposite because of the inordinate and asymmetrical advantage he has in numbers. But in terms of finance, 
and resupply and public opinion and the increasing depots. I mean, some of the figures that we're hearing are just out. out I mean, they're, they're incomprehensible. 10 or 15,000 uh, javelin launchers are pouring in from all the uh, yes, NATO countries. Yes, and if you look at footage, the latest footage I looked at last night, uh, it was just a, a small squad of Ukrainians, maybe recent volunteers, and they were moving to contact every single member of the squad. Yeah. had a javelin on his back. When, when, I mean, that is not the usual way that you actually no. deploy them. And when, it, when every single rifleman has one, that causes problems for anybody's tank regiment. We're talking to and, they're, and they're used for things other than tanks. They blow yes. up uh, supply buildings. They Absolutely. Can shoot down low, low Fuel depots, you name it. Professor Hansen, um, whatever the, the, the outcome, whether the fighting continues unabated for months to come, uh, whether there is some kind of negotiated settlement whereby larger parts of Ukraine are partitioned off, what is the best way to describe the potential scenario afterwards? Right now, it's not a cold war because civilians are being shelled. Thousands of Ukrainians have died. Tanks are being blown up. Is it right to say at this stage that we have re-entered or could be re-entering a new cold war? Uh, yeah, I think... A lot of it will depend on China, and China's attitude toward Russia will depend on how well Russia does. If Russia becomes an international pariah and it loses, then China feels that it screwed up the paradigm that it wants to use for Taiwan, yes. that there was more international outrage, and the people like the Taiwanese might fight like the Ukraines, and we might supply the Taiwanese as we did. The, and they, they will blame Russia for that, and they will try to straddle, they'll be more like India, straddle the fence. But if Putin wins and he ends up with half of Ukraine and he has a energy and food for cash from uh, China, then I think it's going to be potentially, and he has 7,200 nukes that uh, might be on the side of China in any showdown, then I'm, I think we're headed for something that's pretty dangerous because the thing about the Cold War was the communist system was so inefficient and their GDP was so pathetic that they couldn't sustain a 50-year war. But China's a communist country, but it's got a proto-capitalist system, and it's flush with cash. And we never had people in the Cold War that were compromised like they are now with yeah. China. So many people are making so much money. that it, So if that alliance materializes, I'm really worried. Uh, so I think that's very important that uh, Putin is humiliated and is seen as an albatross to the Chinese rather than an asset. But whatever occurs, the, the, the current marriage can only ever be a marriage of convenience because the Chinese themselves have the plan to be the dominant hegemonic power. So, you know, they, they are making hay while the sun shines. When Visa pulls out of Russia, then they, they'll pick up the slack. But they want to dominate Russia as well, correct? Oh, absolutely. It's just the inverse of the Cold War when uh, if the Chinese wanted – Mao wanted to go into Korea, he had to, he had to ask uh, Stalin's permission. And that was an asymmetrical relationship, and that's how Henry Kissinger tried to leverage China and triangulate. You know, no, China will never be friendlier to Russia than it is to us, or Russia will never be friendlier to China than it is to us. And that was sort of the marquee attitude. So if they enter in this partnership, Russia will be playing the old Maoist role as the inferior partner, and we'll try to – if we're smart – 
we'll try to leverage one against the other. And uh, but so far we've done the opposite. We've done things that I think bring them together, which is unfortunate. Does the poor performance of, of the Russian army and the late uh, seriousness evinced by NATO and uh, others mean that that China will think twice about uh, Taiwan militarily? Uh, does the poor performance of Moscow mean that they they may delay that, or or, or the contrary? I think if they're wise, they're going to understand something about both China and Russia, that they have indomitable militaries within their own borders. Yes. But once the Red Army tried to go into Finland or once the Red Army went into Poland in 1939, it didn't fight nearly as well as the Wehrmacht. It worked. It was very uh, November of 39 to April 40. It was a disaster in Finland. Uh, they didn't really do much for the Spanish uh, people in the Spanish Civil War. And same thing with China. It was it's a very difficult army if you're going to fight in China. But when they went into Korea, the untold story of the Korean War is the American uh, Army uh, Air Force and artillery killed over a million Chinese quote unquote volunteers in Korea and they never and they when they went in Vietnam in the seventies they were not impressive. Neither one of these superpowers has good expeditionary forces. And I think maybe China thought, well maybe we do now. Maybe Russia does because they've got all the sophisticated petro fed uh, equipment, but they don't. And they it's very hard to get those people's population to be fired up about going into a foreign country. They didn't do it very well against Vietnam, as I said, or against us in Korea. And I don't think the Soviets and the Russians have ever done it well. If you want to understand more of what the professor is talking about, one of the greatest reasons for the paucity, the weakness of the Russian deployment is because the Russian army depends almost exclusively, except for the last 100, 150 kilometers, on railroad systems for its yeah. deployment. And they have a unique wide railroad gauge, which doesn't exist uh, in most parts of Europe and only one or two lines in Poland. So once you get to the end of the Soviet, the old Soviet train system, them, that's it. You've got to have fuel. You've got to have yeah. trucks. And they don't have enough of it. And that's one of the reasons. Uh, your reaction to these ideas that I, I think are, are, are pie in the sky, that there has to be a decapitation of the KGB colonel and the, there will be some nascent actor inside Moscow who says enough is enough and the, the Russian Stauffenberg will take action? No, I don't think so. I think if they didn't have Putin, you'd have to invent him. And I don't think it helps us at all to talk about assassinating a leader who's sort of unstable to begin with, with 7,200 nukes. I just don't think it's a wise thing to do. I don't like this idea that after, that all these people, it's not just the right that's doing this, but all these people on the left that appeased this guy and appeased him and appeased him. Now, as almost a psychological method of squaring that appeasement circle, they're now the most strident in talking about, well, we're going to give them warthog planes. Uh, we're going to do the exchange with the F-15s for MiGs. We're going to have no-fly zones. Uh, we're going to have volunteers from NATO go flock. You know, why? when there was a time you wouldn't even conceive that, but it, we just ask you to pump oil and we ask you not to have reset with him and don't have these hot mics quid pro quo with him and don't invent the steel dossier alpha bank uh, mythologies about him. And they couldn't do that. Just if Joe Biden had just said, if you hack again and you shut down the colonial pipeline, I can guarantee you we're going to shut down two of yours. Yeah, we wouldn't be here. 
we wouldn't be here. If he had said, you know, I'm never going to ask for one drop of oil from you, Vladimir. If I have an oil shortage, I'm counting on Texas, not you. But he just did the opposite. So yeah. now as a, as a makeup for that, they sound, they're, you know, they're pounding their chest as if they're George Patton. Professor, I know you've been very concerned with you your, yourself and you, you've organized some of your, your fellow scholars, um, given the, the wokeification of the U.S. military, not just for the last 14 months, but prior to that under the Obama administration, the political correctness, critical race theory that has swept through our academies. It, I mean, it may be early to say, but but could this very cold shower of Russian invasion of a neighboring nation be a, 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 an antidote or at least a, 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 an early inoculation for our military that we will have to get back to basics such as learning how to kill our enemy and be real war fighters? Could this, be, could this serve a positive trend? I think it is. I think it's the military counterpart to the domestic green movement. The green movement is sort of discredited now because in, the, in extremists, what are they talking about? Oh, this is an occasion where we can push more alternate energy, even though they in some ways are culpable and have blood on their hands for empowering Putin. So, yeah, I think all of these theories vanish when bullets start flying. So a lot of people are saying, you know, I don't see how diversity and equity and inclusion did anything other than weaken us in Afghanistan to the greatest humiliating defeat since Vietnam, 1975. And the same thing here. We lost deterrence that somehow this this crazy Putin, I don't think he's crazy, he's evil, but somehow he gauged that the United States would not be a muscular rival and would write off Ukraine and probably wouldn't even supply it in the way that uh, Biden had refused, as Obama initially, to send offensive weapons to them. Um, and so I think, he, yeah, he thought we were woke. And it, and I think we, we are woke. So, yeah. But when bullets fly, I mean, nobody says, what's the racial composition of the dead? And when you hit an artillery strike, nobody says, uh, did a man or a woman engineer that strike? It's just, it, that's all reduced to superfluousness. And I think that's what happens in war. And, uh, you know, on the eve of Pearl Harbor, America, first people were still talking about Hitler was not blameless. In 24 hours, they were enlisting. Yeah. And that can move really swiftly. But Secretary Austin, uh, Mark Milley, a lot of the retired generals, they have a lot to answer for. Because um, if you were a cynic, you could say they were all interested in corporate America, either before or after their tenures in the case of Austin. And uh, they adopted a woke creed that weakened the military's uh, military readiness. And I'm not sure they all believed in it sincerely. I think they felt that this was part of the accepted protocol and narrative that one must voice from one star to four star to get promoted while in the military and to do well when one leaves the military. Senior fellow, Hoover Institution, Stanford University, co-host of the Scholars and Sense podcast, most importantly, a historian, strategist extraordinaire. The latest book is The Dying Citizen. Prior to that, I recommend all of them, but check out the Second World Wars and the website victorhanson.com. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
the explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.